Here in the introduction, I want to mention, uh, it's sort of funny, I, it's easy to mention him frequently because I, I do find his uh, public interactions fascinating, and that is uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, the Canadian clinical psychologist uh, who is engaging with the culture in a fascinating way. Every once in a while, I forget he's Canadian. Then he'll say a, you know, a boot or a, a you know, he'll do something like that. Oh yeah, this is a Canadian we're watching, a, a real life Canadian. And it's interesting because he is an intellectual. He has been through the, uh, the thickness, if you will, of the educational system and come out at the end with a, a vast education. Enough that he has been a professional psychologist, and yet he is also someone who sees through so much the difficulties that are being generated in our culture and sees the shallowness of it and sees some of the foundations of civilization. And I will say some good and bad because the world has not been built on godly foundations. We talked about that a bit at the uh, on the Day of Atonement. But still seeing things that have been placed for generations and generations and then being cast aside for often things that are that are far worse. And yet his mind is not fully opened. It's not, he hasn't been called. Uh, he hasn't actually, not that we know of. I, you know, that would be really nice if he heard our youth podcast sometime and said, oh, I've got to, I've got to check them out. That would be nice. Why he'd be listening to a youth podcast, I have no idea. But anyway, he's not, he doesn't understand the fullness of the truth. And so you see someone sort of publicly wrestling with some things in an interesting way. And I was reminded as I was preparing for this sermon of an actual, I don't know if I'd call it an interview. You know, he has a, a podcast where he talks to individuals and the, he had on there, and I don't know if the fellow is famous or not. I really wouldn't know. I don't run in Greek Orthodox church circles, but I do think he was a fellow who is a publicly prominent Greek Orthodox individual. And so representing a form of quote-unquote Christianity out there in the world. And, and so he was talking back and forth with Dr. Peterson in that. And it's actually really annoying because of how, I don't want to mention his name, the other fellow, because of how little I felt he knew and how poorly I thought he represented things that, that I feel should be represented better. But there was a comment by Mr. Peterson, Dr. Peterson, that I, I want to mention at the beginning because it, it it just came to mind so clearly concerning the topic I wanted to talk about today for the sermon. To understand the context of it, a lot of people do interact in terms of their questions for Jordan Peterson or whether or not he actually believes in God because he recognizes that part of what's going wrong in civilization is that increasingly society is casting aside a lot of its beliefs about God, that there is a God in heaven, that the God in heaven requires right things of you and will punish you for wrong things. And he recognizes that as we cast those things away, society is deteriorating. And he really got a lot of attention for taking a look at the Bible and seeing themes in it that while he didn't seem to think the Bible was necessarily divinely inspired because it was, he didn't seem to believe in God, he recognized there were truths in the Bible that society is dependent on that clearly seem to have a value that supersedes just science or, or, or logic, that there are things that, that you could best call perhaps as eternal. And it's fascinating to see this, this individual sort of wrestle with these things. And he was commenting on this particular podcast about how people ask him if he believes in God. And I feel like his response 
has something to say to us, not because he has something to teach, but because rather he's referring to the impression made upon him by others who are Christians, and we shouldn't fall into the same category. So this is me just quoting from his podcast. He, he, he says there, you know, people have asked me whether or not I believe in God, and I've answered in various ways. No, this, he gives examples. No, but I'm afraid he probably exists. He says that's one answer. Or no, but I'm terrified he might exist. And you have to understand what he means by, by terrified, and he kind of gets into that. He says, now that would be a truthful answer to some degree, or that I act as if God exists, because he recognizes that that acting in life as if God exists means acting the right way, and that society is crumbling because they're increasingly acting as if God does not. He says, which I think I do my best to do that, and he says, but then, speaking of acting as if God exists, he says, but then there's a real stumbling block there, and he means a stumbling block for himself and others, because there's no limit to what would happen if you acted like God existed. And he's not speaking in the miraculous. As he elaborates, he's speaking in terms of the choices you would make. He says, there's no limit to what would happen if you acted like God existed. You know what I mean? He said, because I believe that acting that out fully, I mean, maybe it's not reasonable to say to believers, you aren't sufficiently transformed for me to believe that you believe in God or that you believe the story you're telling me. That is, he's looking at the lives of people who profess to believe in God and he's saying, look, when I, 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 I'm tempted to believe there's a God, but when I look in your life and I see the choices you're making, I don't know that I believe you believe in God. Because I can't fathom you would not be making radically different choices if you actually did. And he said it's a stumbling block uh, for him at times. In fact, he summarizes this. He says, the way you live is not a sufficient testament to the truth. He says, Christians don't manifest the transformation of attitude that enables the outside observer to easily conclude that they believe. And I thought about that a lot because I, it's been on my mind uh, for quite some time. Even I think back when I, I mentioned this sermon, I did a sermon on reasons we can believe confidently that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, even outside of the Bible. And this idea that if you really believe that a man told a crowd all over a country that, hey, I'm, I'm going to rise from the dead. He didn't say it just like that, but that was his testimony to his disciples, that he would rise from the dead once he was killed, and then that man did rise from the dead. If you actually believe that, it would change literally everything. Literally everything. Now, the other fellow he was talking with just didn't seem to grasp what he was talking about. He started talking about, oh, yeah, but there's, there's levels. Like, sure, there's these quote-unquote saints who... I can't remember his examples. They were terrible. I could cry 24-7. And that's why they became saints because they were so, they just were so uh, filled with the awe that God exists. They just cried and cried. And I thought, what garbage. It was just, just, I'm like, I could smell the fumes from my YouTube uh, page, you know, watching here. This guy didn't grasp what he was talking about. He's talking about if, if real Christians actually believe God exists, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that his teachings literally came from God, their lives would be transformatively different. 
if they actually believed those things. And he just wasn't seeing that. I, in my life, in terms of reflecting on that, I've boiled it down to two things. One, there's the magnitude of what we profess to believe. What we believe is gigantic. And we just spent eight days reflecting on the climactic world universe, really changing things that we all profess to believe. Right? We all, we all call ourselves Christians. We believe that a man came and taught many things. As many men do all, all over history, they have come and taught many things. But among the things were things that include the fact that, hey, my things are different than their things. And I'm going to show that by rising from the dead three days after I die. And then he did die. And three days later, 72 hours later, he actually did rise from the dead and was living a different level of existence that we normally associate with God. And that same one said among the things that he taught that are also validated by that, that God longs to do the same thing with you and me. That he longs to make us eternal beings, not just physical, chemical beings with a temporary existence, but those who will live forever in joy and satisfaction forever, productively. Uh, it's, it's, there's a magnitude of things there that demand our attention. But then also, there's the fact that they do more than demand our attention. If we truly believe those things, there should be differences that we see in our lives because of that. Uh, actually, during the feast, uh, I, I wanted to do something that uh, Dr. Merritt talks about in uh, the booklet, What is the Meaning of Life? Which is the new name for the booklet, Your Ultimate Destiny. If you're ever looking for your ultimate destiny, it's gone. Your destiny is gone. No, your destiny is not gone, but we have retitled the book that talks about it, too. What is the meaning of life is our hope that people weren't requesting this book enough. And it needs to be in front of every pair of eyeballs in the country, even people with only one eye. They need to see that, too. Uh, and so we retitled it in the hopes it will appeal. And Dr. Meredith has a paragraph at the very end here on page 25 in the most recent printing. Where he's talking about God the Father, he, say, he says, He and his firstborn son, like a loving family, are preparing other sons to join with them in ruling this world and later the entire universe. So go out under the stars some clear night. Try counting as many stars as you can see and then think of the billions of stars scattered across the vast universe you cannot see. And then meditate on this awe-inspiring purpose for your life and thank God for it. Then get down on your knees and begin to zealously do your part to make it all possible. And we tried to do that. One of the places we booked for the drive on the way back from California was in Arizona. And the website boasted about dark skies, really dark skies. And they had an observatory on the premises. It's like, whoa, this is going to be amazing. We're going to do exactly like what this says. Well, let's just say it's a little closer than Tucson than, uh, you know, you might think. So the skies weren't quite as dark as we hoped, though they were dark. And yeah, they had an observatory, but they didn't say you got to tell them ahead of time so they can make sure an astronomer is there. And so we didn't tell them ahead of time. And even though Mr. DeSimone was really well to to sell one of his kids almost, I think he would never do that. I'm just kidding. To try to get that astronomer there, he was not coming. Oh, it's too windy. It's too windy. We couldn't do it. So we ended up did, we kind of laid out where the observatory was. We sort of brought pillows and, and, and laid back in our chairs. And you could see a lot of sky. It was It was beautiful. Definitely a lot more than we normally see. 
Oh, we still had that itch, right? And so Mr. DeSimone and I and several of our, of our party actually drove out another half hour, 45 minutes away into the darkness in a, a lonely road that we kind of figured, you know, hopefully it's not where killers live or anything like that, you know, because they know nobody's going out there. And we did get out and it absolutely was tremendous. It just was beautiful. I don't think I've ever seen uh, quite that many stars. It was it was definitely worth the effort. And while we were there, uh, Miss Emily D. Simone made a comment that night. She said, "Because I this was right after this was after the last great day, and I had given a sermon on the last great day since uh, Mr. Weston was covering the meaning of the day, talking about what happens after that. Right? What is our inheritance after the events depicted by the last great day? And so it was uh, actually uh, Miss Emily who said, uh, "Mr. Smith, we're looking at our inheritance." You know, she's laying back there next to her sister and looking out into the sky and saying, we're looking at our inheritance. And my wife and I were commenting on that, reflecting on that. And my wife mentioned uh, just last night, actually, if we really believed that, then how differently would we live our lives? If we truly believe that that's our inheritance, then how differently would we live our lives? Now, some of you might be thinking, I already live my life absolutely perfectly in conjunction with that belief. If so, you know, I don't know, uh, you're a little delusional. I will just say, I don't know anyone who's fully 100% living their life in conjunction with that belief. How do I know that? Because we're still physical. We're still being purified. We're still changing. We're still growing. But I would argue that... To the extent we do believe that, to that extent we are living the life that we should. And part of our desire is to grow in that belief and to grow in living in that way. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. I'd like to talk about if that belief is real, then what should the consequences be in our life? How should that belief become visible in our lives and I'd like to do that by asking some questions to help us focus on that, examining ourselves. You know, Dr. Winnell mentioned in the announcements, this is a good time of year for setting goals. And I personally find the same thing, that you've got Passover, which is a very uh, self time of self-evaluation, and then roughly half a year later, you've got the end of the feast. And so you can, every six months or so, you've got these opportunities. And I know I plan on setting some goals that I can examine myself for that much more accurately uh, when Passover comes. And I want to ask us some questions to cause us to reflect on that. To what extent am I truly living like I believe these things? And how would anybody know upon looking at me, like, say, a Jordan Peterson, that that guy seems to believe these things? And in what ways am I not? And then what ways should I change that I can think about six months or so from now come Passover? The title of my sermon today is Live Like You Believe It. Live Like You Believe It. And before we get to the questions, I do want to highlight that the belief in your destiny, the belief in your purpose should have practical outworkings. It's a challenge. You've got the, a certain uh, strains of Christianity outside of the truth that kind of want to tell you that there's nothing for you to do and that you can come just as you are to God. And no matter what happens over the rest of your life, you're just going to be in heaven, as they would picture it. And, and, and don't worry about the details. And we don't believe that. We do believe that if you understand this, there should be changes. We should change. Uh, and it would be a natural consequence to do so. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. Probably a passage that was read at your feast site more than once. 
1 John chapter 3. I remember years and years and years ago when people asked what my favorite passage was, I always said this. It's a little harder now, you know, you grow, then suddenly other passages grab your attention in different ways. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. We read, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, verse 1 of chapter 3, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. That's something important. You know, if you're hard to understand by people out in the world, by your boss, by your coworkers, that's normal if you're filled with this kind of hope. Because the people in the world aren't filled with this kind of hope and it's easier to understand them to a certain extent. But you are always going to be confusing. I would almost say, perhaps to the extent this is a part of you, even more confusing you may be to others. Now, some of you are confusing for completely different reasons. You might want to reflect on that. But this would be a source of confusion for others. So they don't understand your motivations. They don't understand why you make the choices that you do. Verse 2, he continues, Beloved, now we are children of God. This is, this, by the way, this verse really does picture what we teach in the church. That in the womb, that is your child, while it is in the womb. But it's not really until it's born that you truly get to see it and see that it reflects its mother and father. You know, ten fingers, ten toes, those sorts of things. It says in verse 2, Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, that is Jesus Christ, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, in glory and power. And filled with life for all eternity. We'll see him as he is. And we'll be like that. He'll be like a mirror. We'll look at ourselves and we'll see that. We just spent time at your Feast of Tabernacle site talking about that. Then verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is where it's different. It's not just an academic hope. It's not just something we know is going to happen and it doesn't make an impact at all. If you truly have this hope in you, you will purify yourself. You won't be able to help yourself from doing that. You know, some of you have had movies coming eventually. You've, it's like a, maybe a, a premiere. You've just been announced and it's six months away. Oh, and you're so excited. You're so excited. And you're going online and you're looking for news. And you're trying to see this, trying to see that. Maybe it's a continuation of your favorite story. And you're wanting to know what's going to happen. And some of you are into spoilers, which I, I, they're called spoilers. I can't stand spoilers for movies. But some of you don't really care and you're diving into those ideas. We get excited about the things that we know are coming. Well, in this case, if you truly believe this, you won't be able to help yourself. You must begin purifying yourself. Those things that accord with that future identity, you will want to build. You'll want to grow. Those things that do not accord with that, you will want to eject from your life. Because there's a draw. There's a pull on that. Now, do all of us do that perfectly? No. I don't know anyone who does. Not that I've seen anyone sometimes behaving imperfectly in accord with that, but at the same time, uh, it certainly is a certain presumption I have. It's, it's a challenge to be filled with that. You know, I, you know, for instance, we've said sometimes, well, would you be watching that if Jesus Christ were right next to you? Whatever it is you're watching. Not right now, it's me. But you know what I'm saying? You know, if you're at home or, you know, you're on the internet, you know, hey, would you be, would you be looking that up if Jesus Christ were right next to you? 
And on one level, we know he is. Right? We know it. We know that he's there with us, that we're surrounded by angels. But then there's times when we just, it's kind of clouded. We don't see it the way we should. It reminds me of the individual who professed to Jesus Christ when he wanted his son healed. And Jesus Christ told him, all things are possible to those who believe. And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's actually one of my favorite human statements in the Bible that a a person who's not Jesus Christ or one of the apostles, just a a regular Joe, if you will, uh, says, because I resonate with that. I believe God. Help my unbelief. Help me perfect this belief. If we're filled with that, we will purify ourselves. That's right out of the Bible. If we can truly take in the things that were talked about this feast, if we actually believe them to the extent we should, our lives will necessarily be different. One thing you have to say is true about Jesus Christ is he 100% believed. And it's not a coincidence that he is also the one individual who has lived on this planet who was 100% sinless. The onus is on us to strive to believe those things. Well, let me start launching into some questions that we can use to evaluate ourselves. And I'm not saying this is a comprehensive list of questions. Uh, It's just a list of questions. You might have other questions that you could think of. But if we were truly living like we believe the things we heard during the Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day, then how would we respond to these? For instance, if we were truly living our lives as if we believed the things we heard about at the feast, then how would we spend our free time? How would we spend our free time? Now, I want to make sure you don't think uh, I'm saying we would always be in the Bible, no matter what. Someone says, well, let's go see this movie. You say, well, no, I've got to read my Bible. You know, I say, hey, uh, you know, we're all going skiing. You want to go? No, I've got to pray. So, hey, it's time to eat. No, I'm watching a sermon uh, by Mr. DeSimone, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. Uh, people can go to extremes and you see that in some perversions of the Christian faith. You have a monastic life, right? People just go into and they, they take vows of silence and just pure contemplation. That's not the way Christ actually wanted things. It's not the way God intended them. And yet at the same time, if we truly believe this destiny, it is going to impact our free life because it would impact everything. You know, as in the announcements, uh, I thought it was so funny because I, I made want to make sure I made a note of this. I don't know, perhaps anyone in the church that is more consistent with the idea that you should be mindful of your future and be preparing for it uh, than Dr. Douglas Winnale. He says that it seemed like every other sermon, right? This is going to be your future. What are you doing now to prepare for that, right? Are you mindful of that in the choices you make and what you're doing? And it's like right on schedule. It was even in today's announcement. So if you don't believe it, you can go take a look at those. Because he's very consistent about that. And I've appreciated that about his consistency. You know, it's not that our free time would become extremely narrow, but it would be impacted by everything. And it's not that there's not opportunity for fun and joy and even a little bit of silliness. Silliness in and of itself isn't a sin, even though a lot of sins fall under silliness. Uh, you know, for instance, we, we did some frivolous things uh, on the way back from the feast. Uh, one of my favorite moments on the way back from California 
was on the first day's ride. Uh, there was this place. We really couldn't go there on the way to California. We couldn't stop because uh, we wanted to make sure we were there at a decent time because uh, it was going to be. Uh, I was, was, uh, uh, well, we just need to be there at a decent time. And it was a place where you could access the dunes. Like desert dunes, like Sahara kind of dunes that they do have in California, which I'd never seen in person. I've seen dunes like in uh, the, the beach at Corpus Christi, you know, where the, where the ocean washes stuff up and there's humps of sand. But these were like hills of sand or mountains of sand. And Mr. D. Simone, oh, so wanted to be on a dune. He did. I mean, a lot of us did, but I don't know any of us were as eager as Mr. D. Simone. And he was behind us. We, we were caravanning. And uh, there was a place where you could exit. And maybe you could get out there and, and see those dunes because they're only there for a, a brief stretch uh, along the highway. And we did exit there, but there was not there was not a, an access to the dunes. But my wife looked on her phone and said, oh, no, there's an actual literal access point, something designed because people do go out there and drive four wheelers and, and other things. It's a national park. And there was an access point just a little ways down the road. All right, that's it. Let's go. So we went. And we parked, and as we were sort of preparing, I, I just can't adequately describe what I saw in Mr. DeSimone's face. As before, he was running past our van, and he turned and looked in our van, and I don't know how to, this is the best description I can think of. If you took joy and somehow turned it into a physical substance and then shaped that substance into a face... It would have been Mr. DeSimone's face. He was so happy. Uh, and then second place was their dog. Uh, their dog was thrilled. They just cut that dog loose and it was the best thing ever. I was exhausted trying to get up the hill. However, uh, it really was actually amazing. And he was just so happy. Did we have to do that? No. Was it a little silly in places? Ah, yeah, a little. But it was fun and there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, there are a lot of fun things, quote unquote. There's a lot of frivolous things. There's a lot of unnecessary things that we do that are negative. That if we truly had our destiny in mind fully, we probably wouldn't do them or we would do them differently. It's worth asking ourselves about the things that we watch on our streaming channels that we choose to partake in. Is it in conflict in some way? With that destiny, uh, the music we enjoy listening to, what we choose to do when we socialize and where we go to do that, the movies that we watch, the books that we read. Now, I'm not talking about judging each other about those things, which is really easy to do. It's very easy to do. And Jesus Christ warns us about that. We all stand and fall to our master on our own to a certain extent. But that doesn't mean judgment is impossible. We are living in a time of judgment. Now is the time we're supposed to discern what to partake of and what not to partake of. Part of what's tempting about judging other people's choices is it's a time when you don't have to be judging yours. So I'm not trying to invite us all to judge other people, but I am inviting all of us to truly consider these things and ask ourselves, make it external from you, if you will. And say, if I were looking at someone who truly believed to his depths, to the same depths Jesus Christ did, everything I just heard at the feast about my destiny, about my purpose, about what eternity is going to be like for me and for that person, what would I expect to see in that person's life 
when they make choices, when they flip on the television, when they turn on some music, because we want to see that reflected in ours as well. All right, another question I'd like to ask. If we truly were living life as if we believed the things we profess, how would that be reflected in our approach to family? How would that be reflected in our approach to family? And there's multiple levels of that, to be sure. Extended family, yes. Uh, marriage, our marriages, which is the core of family. I think we've mentioned before, you know, when you get married, you create a new family unit. Obligations shift. If we truly were living life as if we believed these things, then when we entered into marriage, an institution God created to teach us very specific things about our destiny, how would we behave in it? In fact, go before that. When you were thinking about marriage, how would you think about it differently? What would enter into your mind and your considerations? If I recognize that my destiny is a part of the family of God for all eternity, then I would want to manifest as much of that mind as I can now. And how would that impact how I'm preparing for such a possibility? And then let's go further and we'll look at a scripture. Let's consider children. If I truly believe in the things I profess to believe about my destiny, how is that going to impact how I deal with children, the prospect of having children? And actually how I deal with them when I have them. Let's turn to Malachi chapter 2 and remind us of something important. Remind ourselves of something important. Now, we live in a world where things aren't all as they should be. Uh, things don't work completely as they should. Uh, and God has very special purposes for each of us that sometimes end up with a very unique path. But he does reveal here that one of his purposes in general, specifics aside, for marriage is children. And I have to ask myself, well, if that's his purpose, if it reflects his mind, and I want that mind for all eternity... And if my wife and I are capable of having children, then why would I not want to have children? Because there are people in the world making that decision now. And it's easy to say, well, the world is getting so terrible. I don't know that I want to bring children into that, which people have been saying for decades. You know, the church hasn't gotten any divine message that has said, now is the time not to have children. At least, unless Mr. Wesson hasn't told us something he heard this past week. Now, he's not shaking his head or anything. So I think we're still good, you know, to have some babies. So God did this. In fact, let's read it in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. We read here, Malachi 2 and verse 15, as God is talking to a sinning people about marriage. He says in verse 15, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. God desires godly offspring. It is a passion of his. It is something he wants in the world. 
There's so many ways in which in the West marriage is corrupted. Uh, essentially, what used to be the frivolous rom-com has become what marriage is supposed to be. I love you. You love me. Let's get married. Except nowadays, more and more people are even skipping the let's get married part. I mean, it's getting worse and worse, right? But as if that is all there is to it. As opposed to God, when he created marriage, he had children in mind. That's a natural consequence. It's a natural, it's a part of the design. It's not an accident. That's part of why he made man and woman one, was because he seeks godly offspring. Now with this in mind, let me highlight. And I, I'll make sure I qualify so we don't misunderstand it, because it is easy to misunderstand, and especially the way I'm going to put it. But when it comes to our children, what is more important concerning those children? That they get a degree or that they are filled with the knowledge of God and they adopt God's own purpose for them as their own? All other things remaining equal. Like, let's say you had to make a choice. You don't have to make a choice. And education is important. I'll talk about that. At least preparation is important. The world has messed with the word education anymore. You can't even trust it means education anymore. Frankly, a lot of what's called education today is like a de-education. But preparation is important. There's a reason it was one of the uh, first of Mr. Armstrong's seven laws of success, preparing yourself. Right? Uh, skills are important in the world. But let's say you had to make a choice. Either a degree for your children or them adopting God's purpose for them as their own purpose. Let's all agree it's not a debate, right? There's literally no debate. If you think there's a debate... Why are you in this church? There's surely some other church, you know, the, the church of collegiate aspirations uh, that you could attend and, and, and not be in this one. Because that is the single most important thing a parent can achieve, which is difficult because, as you know, as some of you as parents, you're not completely in charge of that. You might wish your child didn't have a say, but your child also has a say. But it doesn't remove from us as parents the obligation to do everything we can to help them make the decision that God's purpose for them is also their purpose. And that God's will for them is also their will. You know, if we turn to Genesis chapter 18, we see God's concern for children in even the most fundamental decisions of what he is doing in the world and with his people. In Genesis chapter 18. To set the stage, we know how vital Abraham is to our faith. We know what he represents. That God called him aside from his people. Very much a picture of what he's done with us. And many of you know what verses we're going to. Just by me starting to talk about children and Abraham. Which again, if you know, congratulations, you're accountable for those things. Right? It's like, oh, I know where he's going. He's going to go to that thing about Abraham's children. Congratulations. Live up to it. Because if it's in you, God also knows it's in you. So God calls Abraham aside. And it's easy to think, well, he just called him aside because uh, he's the father of the faithful. Or he's going to have a bunch of kids that he can one day bless. And they can invent things like MTV. 
which is terrible. Uh, if only Abraham had known, he might have asked God, really, really, do you want me to have a family? I hear they're going to make this MTV thing. But children were fundamental to the calling of Abraham. It was a part of his plan for Abraham from the beginning. He says as much in Genesis chapter 18. He's trying to, we have God uh, debating with himself out loud, meditating out loud, if you will, about whether or not to talk to Abraham about what he's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. So in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 17, we read here, it says, and the eternal said, verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that this is part and parcel of God's purpose for Abraham. I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the eternal to do righteousness and justice, that the eternal may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him, that Abraham's children would grow in the faith was part of the very reason that God actually called Abraham and built a relationship with Abraham. If I believe that my destiny is to be in the family of God and to be experiencing eternity and reality, dimension upon dimension, like God and Jesus Christ can experience it right now, then when I look at my children, how is that going to impact my desires for them, my priorities for them, the choices I make on a day-to-day -day basis that impact them, the directions in which I am going to encourage them, the directions in which I'm going to discourage them from going, all the more knowing that I can't completely control that. Isn't that really one of the terrors of being a parent is you want so much and yet you recognize you actually don't get to make the choices. You can't make the choices. The other terrors is that you might be doing it wrong, right? <laughs> I'm trying to get them to go this way and all this time you're getting them to go that way and, and, and you just sometimes you feel dumb, right? Uh, but thankfully God's a part of that as well. So we've got, got him helping us out. But I want to encourage you between now and Passover. Again, we'll get to revisit these things perhaps on Passover. To weigh, okay, if I'm living like, like I believe the things I just heard about, and someone were watching me deal with my children, or seeing me plan for children, or hearing the things I teach my children, or taking notes on the priorities I'm encouraging my children to set, would they see that reflected? The fact that I believe the things I profess to believe. All right, new question. And I apologize for the awkwardness of it, but this has become such a vast part of our lives in so many ways, I, I, I feel I had to give it a broader term. If you really believe, if, sorry, if you're living life as if you really do believe the things you profess to believe, then what would your internet life look like? And I say internet life because... Well, because it's becoming every, your your refrigerator has a relationship with the internet in a lot of houses these days, you know. Uh, I was going to just say, what would your social media life look like? And I realized that's not enough. The internet is essentially a vast pipe into your brain from the world. And it will fit as much in it as you choose to request. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily it's bad. You can't truly seal yourself off from the world. You can't just completely 
okay, honey, I'm in a vacuum bag. Now hook it up to the machine and, and just kind of suck it up. And like, ah, oh, great. Well, one, you will die. And secondly, your last thoughts will probably still be corrupted by evil because you couldn't take your brain out, right? Uh, you can't actually seal yourself off from the world. Increasingly, it requires an ability uh, to interact with the rest of the world through this thing we call the Internet. Uh, you can cut off all sorts of social media, but unless you're truly going to become Amish, you probably can't. And I have it on good authority that a lot of the Amish, you go to their basement, they have a computer and a website open. Uh, I hear from people who actually visit in some of their homes. I feel like one day it's going to be an Amish person hear these because maybe they got lost or wandered in and says, I tell you the truthfully, I have not an Internet in my home. And that's going to be the one guy. Because what I understand, a lot of them do. They have ways. They have things they have to order. They Anyway, stop picking on the Amish and move on. Uh, let's say this. Let's go ahead and use social media. And let me ask you the question that I have to ask myself as well. Because I do have a, a certain social media presence. I do go out on Twitter a lot. If I were to examine, say, your Facebook wall. Not me, actually God, let's say. But anybody, let's say Jordan Peterson. If he were to examine your Facebook wall, uh, your feed, which has been trained by you in terms of what to feed you, that's how feeds work. Uh, if I were to look at your YouTube history, including the items that you clear off, if someone were to look at those things, what would they decide is clearly very important to you? Might be family. Well, that could be good. Pictures of the kids, you know, activities. Might be dunes. You don't know. Mr. Simone, fulfilling a dream. Uh, for a lot of people, honestly, in terms of what I see personally, just personally, when I dip my toes in, I would say that it is clear a lot of people are passionate about uh, vaccinations or not being vaccinated. Uh, various theories concerning COVID, uh, how bad it really is or not really is. Uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, a lot of people very clearly passionate about them. Uh, Republicans and Democrats, I would see a lot of that. You know, passion about such things is certainly understandable. But would someone look at that, look at your feed perhaps, and conclude this person clearly believes something that nobody else in the world seems to believe. There's something, there's something in this individual's mind and heart that is so different from everything else I see around me that I want a part of that. I want some of that. I have no idea who this person is. It's not like they're just saying profound things, but they reflect something. Like there's something in them that I want in me as well. If we're living life in a way that reflects what we profess to believe, how does our social media feed reflect that or fail to reflect that? Let's turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, and Jesus Christ will, says something important for us, and it's easy to miss. And I say that because I know I used to miss it a lot in the past. Luke chapter 21 and verse 34. We'll start in verse 34. 
We read, but take heed to yourselves, Jesus Christ says. Notice he's talking to you about yourself. It is true we need to watch world events. We are encouraged to do that. We don't want to be caught off guard. And frankly, it is encouraging, even as the news gets worse, it's encouraging when we see God moving in the world. We should watch current events. But there will be people watching current events and maybe at their charts at home, they've got figured out this guy's the beast. He's going to rise to power for the first time in a parliament speech that happens on May 23rd, 2000, such and such. I even got a copy of the speech. I've done all the research. I've done all my homework. I know what's going on. And they're still going into the tribulation because they did nothing but watch the world and did not watch themselves. Maybe in between they watched other people but they weren't watching themselves. Jesus Christ starts off important in verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. It's interesting. It talks about the day coming on people unexpectedly, not saying if you watch world affairs, you'll know it's going to happen, even though, yes, world affairs are filled with signs saying it's coming. But he's saying, take heed to yourselves, lest that day come on you. I will say this, someone who has truly taken heed to themselves, as in comparing themselves to Jesus Christ and striving to live a life consistent with this belief, may not know who the beast power is when he shows up, may uh, get confused about some details of prophecy, but God is not going to tell him, well, you know what? I'm bringing people to the place of safety, but honestly, you focus so much on truly trying to reflect my son in your life and weren't watching the right internet pages concerning news that I just can't have you uh, in the place of safety. I'm afraid you're going to have to suffer. That's not going to happen. Those who are taking heed to themselves are watching, but for what? It lists things. Let's see. Uh, Let your hearts be weighed down with carousing. Is anyone carousing? Raise your hand. Just kidding. Don't raise your hand. Well, talk to Mr. Strain if you are. But I, let's, just, let's just presume we're not carousing. If so, you know. Shame on you. Uh, drunkenness. Again, let's presume that no, I can't, no one currently seems drunk. Good. Good on you. Good. Uh, if you have a problem with that, and there is no excuse for it. I mean, I've known members sometimes say, look, I, yes, I get drunk and I get blotto, but I, I stay at home. Jesus is still there, right? Uh, you don't, there's no excuse to get blotto. I think, do we, anyone say blotto anymore? I used to say blotto. Uh, there's no excuse for that. Drunkenness. We don't, God never gives us permission to just completely turn off our brains and lose all control. It's literally the opposite of what we will be in the kingdom. So carousing drunkenness we get, but then it says cares of this life. And that's the one I used to miss all the time. I was so focused on patting myself on the back that I'm not a carouser or a drunk that I miss cares of this life. And that can be translated a lot of different ways. Uh, you can read it, cares of uh, this life, worries and distractions of this life, anxieties of this life. Uh, in fact, it parallels this, the parable of the sower and the seed, which we won't turn there, but you might note Matthew 13 and read about that. It talks about how some seed fell on fertile soil, but as it grew up, that is the seed of the word, talking about the kingdom to come. But as it started to grow, these thorns grew up and choked it out. 
And Christ describes those thorns, at least part of them, as the cares of this life or the cares of this world, the anxieties of this world, the concerns of this world. You know, I have a a fellow who has written me a few times. He no longer attends with us, but used to attend with us uh, some time ago. And, you know, you're on television and you you write an article and people write in and 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 and, and I love him. I believe that he has God's spirit, but it's interesting. He'll he'll talk about how he sees so many people in, in what he you know, the churches of God as he understands them. And they're so caught up in the things of this world and the ideologies of this world and the politics of this world. And it bothers him because, look, they're falling for this lie from the Democrats and they're falling for this lie from the administration and they're falling for this lie from various media sources. And what I don't know how to communicate, I've, I've kind of wrestled with it, uh, is how to help him understand that he's falling for just the opposite set of lies and deceptions. It's like someone pointing at others that are caught in Satan's trap, hanging from a tree. Like, man, they're just, they just step right on it. What were they thinking? Look at them dangling there. You know what fools they were. When the individual pointing is dangling from his own net in the tree, a few feet away. Because it was just a different kind of bait that worked on them. The cares of this life, do we fall for those? Are we caught up in those? Well, we could see on our internet feeds. We could see on our social media. What do they reflect? It's easy, and I say this, uh, hopefully it's understood uh, with some empathy. It's easy to sometimes justifying going too deep in some things as well, I'm watching world affairs. I think it might be a good article if we could write in the Living Church News how to watch world affairs without getting too caught up m- while maintaining the kind of distance that Jesus Christ was able to maintain. Because we can make excuses like that, and I've seen people make excuses like that while the world affairs are just working their tentacles around them. What would our internet feeds and our behavior online and and the things that we spend so much of our time watching tell to someone about what it is we truly believe and what is most important to us? Uh, Let's move to just a final few things. Ask a quick question. If you were truly living like you believed everything that you profess, if I were living like I believed everything I profess, then what would God's work mean to me? What would the work of Jesus Christ in the world, spreading the gospel to the world, mean to me? In Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 19, Peter and John, it doesn't credit one specifically of the two of them, they were facing Jewish authorities together. Having been arrested for preaching the gospel, again, I think I mentioned in a different sermon, when it comes to living our faith, when most people were persecuted for living their faith in the first century, it was for preaching the gospel. And so they were here, Acts chapter 4 and verse 19. It says, when they were questioned on these things and said, do not preach about this man. We don't want to hear about this man. It's corrupting the faith of the people and uh, you need to stop. But verse 19 in Acts chapter 4 says, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. 
for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They could not hold these things back. They saw their future, the future that we just all talked about and learned about and listened about and discussed with each other during the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. They saw with their own eyes in the presence of the glorified Jesus Christ. Now, I say glorified. He didn't walk around glorified all the time. That would have been terrifying. Uh, but he did. He was raised among them. They saw a man who was dead and will never die again. They talked to him, they touched him, they handled him, they listened to him, and they literally saw him float into the air with a promise that he was going to come back. They said, how can we not talk about these things? You say not, you say not to talk about this, not to tell other people. It's not possible for us. We actually have to speak about these things. It is a shame before God that people will seek to defend their faith and use examples of the apostles standing up to the Jews and not be a part of preaching the gospel. And amongst the many groups and organizations out there calling themselves the church of God, there's a lot of that. Even if no one said, oh, we don't have to, living is doing it. Well, that should make you feel a certain way. You know, the, I was trying to think of a good example, a personal example. And the only one I can think of might sound a little dumb, but it is sincere. And I remember when I was a teenager, I can't recall exactly what age, but I really wanted a telescope, which that's one thing we were excited about on this trip. I've already mentioned I really wanted a telescope, but couldn't afford a telescope. But I did have a, essentially a real small one that's mainly for land purposes. I don't know what purposes. It was a cheap tripod that wouldn't hold it. So you had to hold it yourself. And I remember rigging up some strings and bottle caps so I could kind of position it with a little piece of tape so it would stay looking at something for a while, which is hard because the sky is always moving. And I stayed up late one night. It was going to be the first time I really looked at anything in space through this telescope. Again, I was a, I was a teenager, kind of uh, younger, I would say on the younger age. Might have been preteen, but I think I was a teenager. And I had it set up. I had it in my, my, my front yard, which was terrible with light pollution. We had like a high school football field pretty close, and they kind of left those lights on all the time. Uh, and I was close to the city of Dallas, so it was truly in perfect conditions. But I didn't care. I was too excited. I was going to look at something. And I knew when you zoomed in on stars, you know what they look like? Bigger dots, right? It's not like you really see anything. But I didn't care. I just I wanted to look at stuff. So I got outside, and I had this uh, TV tray set up, and I had this sort of foam chair behind it. I had to lean back. And I just was ready. I was ready to go. And I said, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to pick the, the, the brightest one. And it happened to be conveniently above the trees. So I picked the brightest star that I could and, and got in the, the telescope and it didn't have any fancy knobs. You're just shoving it in and out. It was about as basic as you get. And I got it in focus. And at the last minute I saw it was not a star. It was Saturn. And I've since gone back. And if you actually look up uh, what Saturn was doing at the time, it was at full tilt. It was like the absolute best viewing time you could see Saturn. I, I didn't see the rings, in, but I did see, it looked like the CBS symbol, for those familiar. Uh, you know, it was tilted, and you could see space between the ball in the middle and the rings on the outside. And I jumped up. I didn't know what to do. Like, like suddenly I felt like I had to do something because I, I wasn't expecting, I didn't know it was Saturn. And I'm standing there in the dark, it's like midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And I just, well, I, I, you know, I need to do something. I got back and looked at it and said, oh, I, I know I need to tell, I need to tell mom. You know, I need to go tell my mother about it. 
believe me, she would not have wanted to be woke up. So I, I literally went into my house, at our little ranch-style house, very small. And I, I went to the door, and it was closed because she knows she has a son that stays up late being stupid. You know, she's trying to go to bed. And I just was inches away from knocking. And I think, oh, my mother does not want to be woken up. But it just seems like I should wake up and tell her, you know, what I saw. What if it's not there tomorrow night, right? Which, of course, it was going to be there tomorrow night. And I just feel compelled to share with someone that I had no one. And so it was all just felt like a fire in me that was just burning all of me. Because it was amazing. And you might think, look, I've seen pictures of Saturn. It's nice, but it's not that great. Well, you know what? You're not me. It might be something else for you. For me, it was a virtually a life-changing moment. It was astonishing. And I felt such need to share with someone. And I would dare say that those who consider themselves Christian but don't truly feel pressure to tell this world the things we've been given. Don't fully believe the things we've been given. And I say that knowing that sometimes I don't feel that pressure either. I'm not trying to point fingers. You know the old saying, you point one finger. I was going to say there's four more pointing back at you. But if you do that, you'll notice there's only three. That's not how... Hand, if you have four... God's given you a gift, you know, you got something else. But, you know, I'm not just trying to condemn other people because all this is about examining ourselves. And there are times when I find I don't feel the same kind of pressure. It's not as important to me. And I can feel self-satisfied that I know this beautiful thing. But brethren, if we're living like we actually believe the things we profess... We cannot but help talk about those things. We cannot help but let people know. And I'm not talking about putting a placard on and wandering the streets like a weirdo. Please don't do that. Unless Mr. Weston one day says God has moved him to say that's how we should spread the gospel. Then let's do it. Let's get behind him and let's do it. But no, we have a telecast. We have a magazine. And every once in a while, you know those times at the office when it just seems like maybe God has dropped something in your lap. Like there's that coworker that just says, I just don't know where the world is going. I just have no idea what is going. I, I wish I wish there was something that I could get once a month, maybe 10 times a month on average, because sometimes maybe it's, tw it's every two months. I wish there was something I could read that would help me know how to make sense of the world. And, you know, he's talking about tomorrow's world magazine. He just doesn't know it yet. Right. And it's those awkward times, but at the same time, do we at least feel like, oh, this, this is, this is one of those things that maybe I need to, well, you know, my church has a magazine, you know, and pray to God that he's able to work in those moments. And certainly pray for the telecast. Pray for the magazine. Pray for the Bible study courses. Because that is the main means by which God is getting these things out there. If we don't feel a pressure, to ask God to bless those things, then to what degree do we truly believe the amazing things we've read about? Because you can't fully believe them and not want to share them with the world. The thing I wanted to wrap up on, and I'll conclude uh, here. I, I think Mr. Ames went a little long in the sermonette. So, uh, but I will wrap up with this. And no, he did not. Mr. Ames does not go long. Uh, 
is this. How does it affect your thoughts about your baptism? And I mean that in two directions. If you are baptized, then your baptism is in the past. And truly believing the things that we believe. How does it cause you to reflect on that baptism? And what it means? And what happened to you that day? It was literally the most significant thing that will ever happen in your life. Beyond the time when you hear that trumpet. Your symbolic death was more significant than the real one that awaits most of us. Do we act in accordance with that? Do we seek to walk in the newness of life that represents? But for a lot of you out there, you're not baptized yet. And yet I say your baptism because there's a future one ahead for you. Unless there's something wrong, unless there's something you don't understand, or unless you don't truly believe the things we're talking about. Is that on our minds? If we're not baptized yet, it should be. I mean, some of you are, are really young, like this, you know, uh, the Hazen's baby. Probably not thinking a lot about baptism yet, but why? What are you doing wrong? No, uh, you know, we grow into these things, right? But we eventually become of mature mind and we have to ask ourselves, do I actually believe these things or not? And we do not do uh, uh, altar calls. We don't sprinkle sawdust so once you get on the road you kind of slide down and eventually fall into the water and we can we say we got one uh, that's not what we do at the same time we would be remiss if we didn't highlight that if you're not baptized you do need to be one day it should be something you're thinking about if you're not and i to, to wrap this up i'll just relate to that i I can't say, again, myself, I think like a lot of you, hopefully over the course of this, you've begun asking, well, just to what degree do I believe all of this? I think in some areas of my life, I do reflect that. In some other areas, I don't, and I want to change. On that last point, the closest I've come in my life, I think to the moment of feeling it as a reality, was related to my appendectomy. And some of you know I've had an appendectomy. Again, I really wish it was like a 50-pound uh, appendix they took out. It was not. It was... You know, well, actually, it was pretty swollen. It was pretty big on me. But, yeah, it wasn't 50 pounds. That would have been nice. But anyway, so I, I had this emergency appendectomy. I won't go into detail. You know, I woke up in the morning. And actually, it was earlier that is the previous day. I had felt this real pain. And sure enough, come morning, I recognized I had to go to the hospital. Well, they did say when I got in, they did the scan that morning and said, yeah, it is... You know, congratulations, you're having an appendectomy. You know, this is large and we do need to get it out. And the doctor did say it was on the verge of bursting, but they did get it out. So I'm very grateful. But here's the actual point I'm driving at. Uh, and as I do this, please recognize I'm not I'm not trying to hold myself up. If anything, I'm it, it's actually humbling, almost a bit shaming. I wouldn't quite put it that way. Uh, challenging, to be sure, in terms of the thoughts that followed in that. Because uh, I didn't know at the time. Nowadays, if your appendix bursts, they, they might still be able to save you. I've known people that, well, I haven't known them. Well, actually, I've talked to at least one, I think, where, yeah, their appendix burst, but they got them in time. they got to open you up and wash all your innards. It's a very special thing, you know, for that to happen. I just know growing up that if your appendix burst, you died. 
And there was a time when that certainly was the case. There just wasn't anything they could do. And that was what I was left with laying there, just hearing I've got this giant bulging appendix. And I'm laying there on the bed. My wife is holding my hand. And, and I am thinking, well, I, you know, I could die today. This really could be it. You know, if they don't get to it in time, they should rush a little more than I think, you know, they are right now. But still, you know, this could be it. And I don't want to say there were no regrets. It's nice to be able to say that. But I did have one small regret. Uh, but it was, it was where I wish I had the opportunity or had taken more time to tell my sons what great men, what fine men I believe they were. Because I feel like it's important for your dad to be able to say that. And uh, I didn't want to yell it out. Ah, oh, I'm in agony! My boys are fine men! Well, you know, it wouldn't make the right impression, right? Uh, and I, and I, yet I didn't feel like writing anything, that's for sure. And I've tried to communicate that over time, but that was the one thing I thought. I was like, well, you know, if, if, if I don't see them again in this life, I hope, I hope they understand that. I hope they know that I, that I thought that. I feel it's important to hear your dad be able to say that when he can. Uh, but at the same time, it was, it was, I might say regret. I wasn't there roiling in regret. I'm very grateful because rather, you know, in the ministry, when someone is, is dying in the church or they're concerned they might be dying, they often call the pastor, uh, their local pastor or a local elder, and we go and visit with them. And I've had the, the privilege of being able to talk with people who were literally about to die. Or were within, you know, within days and they knew it. Or uh, they feared they might die and didn't know. And I, I wish I could say I always said the right thing. I have no idea. I look forward to seeing some of them in the resurrection. And maybe they'll say, hey, thank you for that visit. Honestly, it was terrible and left me feeling worse than when you were there. But you know what? Still, I appreciated the effort. That might be what some of them say. I, I have no idea. But I know what I've sought to say. And I know what I've tried to say. But I've never really been in that spot. Some of you have. You've been there. This was the first time for me. Other than those kind of momentary, scary moments, but one where you think you might die, that this thing burst, I, I believed I was going to die, and yet I've got time to think about it. And in the context of those who haven't been baptized yet, let me just say that I, all I could say is that it hit me, if I do die, if it's painful or whatever, to a certain extent, all that's irrelevant. I'm about to be in the kingdom. Everything I have been taught by some of the greatest teachers God has ordained in the history of mankind, I'm about to experience. I'm about to see. I'm going to see Jesus Christ. I'm going, all my troubles, all my trials, all my struggles, all my imperfections are potentially seconds away from being in the past. And I can't completely communicate to you how comforting that was. I can't, I can't completely communicate the peace I had on that gurney in the emergency room. And I don't know, there might be some future terrifying brush with death where I'm not going to think any of those kind of thoughts. I don't know. All I know is in that one, I felt grateful that my sins had been forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ. And by the application of that sacrifice toward me. And I was so grateful. And I wanted to make sure if these were my last moments, I'm thanking God for that. Because I, I can't believe 
the lack of burden I feel right now. And then, more than that, and I've, I've, I thought about this at the feast, I didn't get to comment in the sermon. I thought that, yes, my, my, hopefully my children and wife will miss me. You like to think people aren't throwing a party the day after you die. Uh, you know, that, that they'll miss me, but at the same time, I'm literally not just, if I'm going to die in a moment, not just seconds away from seeing them, but seeing them in their eternities. That I'm seconds away from seeing my sons and my wife, if they endure in glory and power and filled with a joy that will never go away. And now when I reflect back, that's what my baptism means to me. Is the access it has given me to that. But then I am, like I said, shamed a bit as I have to now examine myself after my appendectomy. Am I living my life as if I truly believe those things? And sometimes I like my answer and sometimes I don't. Brethren, we've got a few months before Passover. Between now and then, let us all reflect on the things we've been given at this feast and ask ourselves, am I living a life that truly shows I believe those things? And where I'm not, may Jesus Christ help us to do so.